Chapter Forty Six, Part Two of Autobiography, Memories, and Experiences, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Arlene Stebbins. Autobiography, Memories, and Experiences, Volume Two by Moncure Conway. Chapter Forty Six, Part Two. The scepticism of Helmboldt's was justified in the case of the clergyman's daughters, who were detected in their clever trick. A. J. Ellis, philologist and editor of Chaucer, a friend of Helmholtz, told me that he, Helmholtz, once said, If an optician were to send me a lens as faulty as the best human eye, I would return it to him as slovenly work. In my discourses at South Place it was not always easy to preserve the calm, philosophical spirit necessary for anthropological study. The men of the theological barrows are alive and pugnacious, and a free-thinking chapel has to be defended. But there were in London tribes of believers so far away from our theological arenas that I could study among them contemporary folklore. One Sunday I found at my chapel door an old devotee of his visions whom I knew in America, john murray spear long known in boston as the prisoner's friend he occasionally sojourned in cincinnati with his little company of disciples they were interesting people but i could never discover just what land of promise they were seeking mr spear was a figure that any old italian master would have rejoiced in to represent the noblest of his saints six feet and several inches in height slender but shapely his hair and beard snow-white his face ruddy or even rosy, his eye exceedingly brilliant, his aquiline nose and other features clear-cut, his head rising to a dome. He was a wonderful apparition. He felt himself guided by some familiar spirit. While lecturing in Cleveland, Ohio, he descended unconsciously into the audience, and after moving about paused before a lady and pronounced her the leadress. He had never seen her, and did not know her name. She at once left all, and followed him. She was present when he told me this. The story was not absolutely incredible to me then, when constantly witnessing phenomenal effects of the elements and forces set free by the crumbling of creeds in the West in those years. John Murray Spear was perhaps a hypnotist, and if so, certainly a benevolent one. In 1882 Mr. Spear and several of his followers appeared in London. He was distressed to find that I was still without the spiritualistic faith, and invited me to attend one evening a séance with a small society for the training of mediums. Curiosity led me to accept, and we travelled to some house far away in Whitechapel. In a large dingy room about twenty men and women sat at an uncovered table fifteen feet long. All except myself were mediums, and the object of their meeting was that the spirits might develop their powers farther each in his or her speciality. There were writing, rapping, pantomimic, and musical mediums. Several had heard me in my chapel, and I was graciously received. One of the ladies reproached me for my unbelief in spiritualism, and I confessed myself a Thomas, constitutionally unable to believe without verifying the actuality of some risen spirit. "'What evidence would you have?' asked several. "'Oh, any little thing will do.' Let anyone here tell me how much money I have in my purse, throwing it on the table. I am surprised, said a lady, that your faith should rest on a thing like that. Well, 
said I. It happens to occur to me. I do not know how much there is in it. There was a sudden hush, then murmurs and whispers. Presently one of the seers, confessing that her power was not perfectly developed, said that it passed before her faintly that there were eighteen pieces in the porte-monnaie. It was opened by a medium near me, and her answer found incorrect. As their gatherings were not for tests, no skeptic having previously attended, I offered some apology for the failure, thus preventing any embarrassment, and the proceedings went on. They became excited. One of the pantomimic mediums, who described one's deceased friend by imitating his manner, began gesticulating before me, clearing his throat, and turning his head on one side. I could not recall any who did that, but said I would think it over. Presently they became noisy. There were loud raps around the table. Some talked to the spirits that rapped. Some uttered their inspirations. They all talked at once. The word Bedlam arose in my mind, but swiftly resolved itself into its original Bethlehem, for it was in that eastern region I had read of things like the wild scene before me. I did not need any Peter to tell me these people under their Whitechapel Pentecost were not drunken, but realized the kind of frenzy that took possession of those early disciples who believed that a dead human being had returned to life. The scene was not ridiculous, but pathetic. Its grotesque features vanished under the thought that if I should believe, really and without any trace of doubt, that a deceased person had spoken to me, I also would be frantic, and my life revolutionized. Under the silent stars I went homeward seated on an omnibus. From the region of far east end poverty and misery, amid which hopes of future bliss supplement the alcoholic anaesthetic, I travelled on past the edifices of art and science. How often in that royal society building had I seen the great men of science displaying their lenses and experiments under the miracle of nature! But how petty would all their wonders appear if one of those frantic mediums could utter a single word proved to have come from another world! I had another experience in London which suggested to me what variance there may be in spiritistic movements, and the forms they evolve holding the secret of corresponding forms in ancient times and regions. In quiet Gordon Square there is a remarkable church, architecturally suggestive of the improved taste of the dissenters. This Church of the Disciples is, with its interior complexities, rituals, and material, a veritable monument of Edward Irving. Once, after listening to the talk of Carlyle about Irving, without getting any clear comprehension of a man so wild, yet so loved, I attended a service in the church. I found it incoherent as its founder. Subsequently I was brought into some contact with it. Rev. H. M. Pryor, a young pastor I had never met, entered my vestry one Sunday and requested my assistance. After some years' ministry in the Catholic Apostolic Church he had lost his faith. So far as the peculiarities of his church were concerned, he believed it nearer to primitive Christianity than other churches. But his changed belief, simple theism, was regarded by his ministerial brethren as infidelity. The formal notice served on him had raised the question whether he should resign or undergo an ecclesiastical trial. He had decided on the latter because it would give him an opportunity of giving his former colleagues the arguments which had convinced him and that appeared to him a duty. Having the legal right to choose a counsellor, he requested me to act in that position. 
finding that he was to conduct his own pleading, and that I was to give an opinion only in case any question as to fairness should arise, I consented. The trial took place in a large room under the church in Gordon Square, and occupied an afternoon. My principal and I were punctual, but found no one on the premises. Fortunately, Mr. Pryor knew the place, for we had to go through complex corridors to the subterranean room, to which as heretics we might not have proceeded as cheerfully in earlier times. It was, I believe, the first trial for heresy in the Catholic Apostolic Church. Soon after us the ministers began to arrive. Each came separately, to the number of more than twenty. All were in solemn black, with white cravats, and every one bore a black leather valise of precisely the same dimensions. I have a vague remembrance of some slight recognition of the presence of Mr. Pryor and myself, but not a word was spoken. As they were dressed alike, I was unable to distinguish one species of minister from another, their ministry being fourfold, but most of them, I think, were angels. All were middle-aged except the young heretic on trial. I was placed on one side of Mr. Pryor, and on the other sat the prosecutor, who read out the charge in a perfunctory way. The indictment was disappointingly commonplace. The doctrines mentioned as repudiated by Mr. Pryor were exclusively the ordinary dogmas of orthodoxy. I was invited to make any preliminary statement I might desire, but made none. Mr. Pryor then entered on his defence, which was carefully written. It was a simple statement of his reasons for disbelieving the dogmas of Scripture infallibility, incarnation, and other things deemed fundamental, but without any repudiation of Christianity. There was nothing acrimonious or irreverent in the manifesto, but it soon raised a storm. An angel interrupted Mr. Pryor, saying that the question was whether the pastor was disqualified by the rejection of the doctrines he was ordained to preach. He did not think they were under any obligation to listen to his blasphemous paper. Several others made a similar declaration, and then it became necessary for me to act. I requested the representative of the council seated beside Mr. Pryor to converse with me privately for a few moments, and found him disposed to peace. I then made a brief address to the assembly, reminding them that it was a very serious sacrifice for a pastor to separate from his church and his brethren that it indicated convictions really religious on his part, and that before they could decide whether he was irrevocably parted from them, it seemed just that they should listen to his entire statement, especially as presumably he could not affect the faith of learned ministers who must be familiar with all varieties of theology. After some discussion it was decided that Mr. Pryor should proceed. The tribunal then easily reached its foregone conclusion. Mr. Pryor was pronounced no longer a pastor of the Catholic Apostolic Church. Naturally he showed no emotion, and did not appear to feel any embarrassment. I had some hope that he would write an important work on the church he had left. But he soon afterward disappeared from my horizon, and I know not what became of him. People who can think, investigate, and fearlessly reason on the phenomena of nature, or on the contents of their own consciousness, are always few and it is as difficult to analyze the causes of change, in mental and spiritual fashions, as of other fashions. How had the fashions of my own mind changed since I used to follow Bunyan's pilgrim with heart palpitant with enthusiasm? Seeing it on the stage in London, I realized that in thirty years the change in me was as complete as if I had been born into another race. 
Among the many curious products of the transitional condition of religion, George MacDonald was one of the most interesting. Liberal at heart, he had not fiber enough to break his old cords. He was not orthodox enough to satisfy the orthodox, nor free enough to satisfy the thinkers. He had a clever wife and a large family of handsome sons and daughters, but they were poor, and contrived to make the pilgrim's progress into a play, in which they all acted. Just as it was promising well, the authorities said they must get a license. That involved paying money. It seemed rather droll that such a diffusion of the plan of salvation should be taxed, but it could not be helped, and so we all began to sell tickets to enable them to give their performance in halls. Here again was the drollery of free thinkers like my wife and myself, actively engaged in furthering the gospel according to Bunyan. We got up a good company for them at Notting Hill, consisting chiefly of fashionable church people and skeptics. The play was well worth seeing. The scenery was painted in pre-Raphaelist style, and there was a finely embroidered hanging representing the land of Beulah. George MacDonald made as splendid a Christian as if he had been evolved for the part. In his shining panoply he encountered an ingeniously wicked Apollyon, represented by his son, and won great applause. But I remarked the worldliness of the younger church folk, who were sadly deficient in Bunyanesque ideas. They were liable to titter at points where they ought to have wept. When Christian fled from the city of destruction, and his wife bewailed that she had not heeded his warnings, a devout church lady to whom we had sold tickets whispered, Are we expected to admire him for running away and leaving his family in the city of destruction? End of chapter 46 Part 2